Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, February 13th, 2022, we continue our series titled Romans, Gospel for All Time. Today's sermon, Through One Man, will be taught to us by Pastor Jeff Stevens out of Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. But first, here's a quick recap of last week's sermon. You know, you may have experienced some difficult moments in your life before or even since you've trusted in Christ. I would encourage you to look to the cross. Look and see what Jesus has done for you. Because the passage here are very clear that Jesus has loved us perfectly in a way that we could not have loved him. He has secured our salvation by his life, not ours. He's healed our relationship with the Father and it brings about a change of heart in our lives. This is a believer's greatest victory. And it should be your victory. And you know what? It can be your victory. You say, well, how am I supposed to respond to all this truth? You respond to it exactly the way that Paul tells us in verse 11, with rejoicing. You know what rejoicing means in our modern day language? Worship. Hey, this uh, message today, this happens to be one of those messages that part of the text in Romans where Paul is gonna take on Um, a fairly heavily weighted doctrinal subject. He's gonna talk to us about the sinfulness, the the depravity of man. And I can't encourage you enough to to walk away here today with this kind of underlying question, right? This underlying question is, is are we of Adam or are we of Christ? And Paul is gonna do an incredible job today of contrasting uh, those worlds, Um, the world of the fallen and the world of those who are in fact saved. Uh, but he's going to spend a predominant period of time in the negatives, and I'll get to that here uh, shortly. But I want to remind us, when we go through the genealogies that are in Scripture, for instance, in First Chronicles, um, this entire book of genealogy, right, in, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 27, is all about Adam to Abraham. Uh, when we talk about 28 through 53, it's from Abraham all the way through to Jacob. And then, of course, chapters 2 and 29 are really all the way to the end of the book, uh, end of that letter is uh, the descendants of David, right? Two through 29 are about the descendants of David, the genealogy of David, and the death of David, of which we know Christ comes of David. He is from David and from that lineage. I don't know about you, but I read that lineage and I think, man, these are some incredible characters all throughout time. And even several weeks ago when we were doing the family series, I had brought to your attention that it took over 4.1 million people just going back six, 700 years ago for you to be sitting in this room here today between great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents to the 20th great-grandparent level. We're talking 4.1 million people. So our genealogy is incredible, but I want us to understand one simple truth. All of us sitting in this room here today are of Adam. Brothers and sisters, we come from the same lineage. We are, in fact, all of him. We all have those people in our family that we sometimes think about, man, we only talk about them as a family. We don't really try to take it to the outside world. For my family, that was a guy, a character known as Cousin Vern. And Cousin Vern was this guy who probably spent his life drunk on the front porch from about 1910 to 1980. Um, He was a guy who would constantly didn't have a job. Um, and in his job, he would say in a drunkenness on his front porch, 
he would say, I, I can't get a job, um, you know, because if I were to go north, I break out in hives and I can't, I can't go north and all the jobs just happen to be north. He was an embarrassment nonetheless, certainly to my father, to his family. Because they grew up in this real small town where everyone knew who the town drunk was. Everyone knew who that guy was, Cousin Vern. I think for many of us, right, we kind of look at the Cousin Vern. If you're having difficulty understanding who Cousin Vern in your family is, then you might want to self-examine because maybe you're Cousin Vern. (laughs) We all have a Vern. We sometimes think about, man, that's unfair that someone would have to be raised in a life where they're constantly embarrassed by a relative or constantly embarrassed by the things that other people do. Well, it even becomes crazier is when God saves a person like Vern. And suddenly this man who's been known to an entire community for, for decades as the town drunk comes to follow and pursue the person of Jesus Christ. And for some of the family members, they begin to say, man, it's just so unfair that he would live his whole life in debauchery and his whole life in sin, and then God would save him here at the end of his life. In fact, life is filled with all kinds of thoughts of fair and unfair. We develop these fair and unfairs through either positives or negatives, usually relative to self. The real question centers on justice. How are we justified? And is it fair or is it unfair? You see, because I can't explain certain things. When I counsel a dear brother, a dear friend whose seven-year-old son was diagnosed with an inoperable brain tumor, I don't know how to console a friend who Uh, In his life, he lives under this constant pressure, this constant sadness, because he and his twin brother, when they were small kids, became uh, drowning together in a pond. And mom could only save one. Where's the fairness in that? I can't explain the loss of an infant, a miscarriage, a stillborn. I can't explain the death of a young person versus an old person. But I know that we tend to put those into fair and unfair. And why do we feel that there is an injustice that is taking place? Sometimes I think it's because churches are broad and everyone in this world wants to only preach and talk about the positives. Let's just talk about the positives. As I read today a news article that a 12-year-old took his own life because he was bullied. Where's the fairness in this? Where's the justice in this? You see, the fall of man presents all kinds of questions, but I'm going to narrow in on six questions today. And I'll answer these questions by the time we get to the end. And we understand what Paul is actually communicating here. But question one is, why is the fallen nature of mankind, why does it matter? Can't we just sit here and talk about love and talk about Jesus and never have to spend any time talking about our wickedness, our sinfulness, about any of that? Can't we all just love Jesus and move on? How does this focus on sin get realized inevitably as a positive Is there possibly a positive in understanding the the wickedness of humanity? How does this view explain the world that we in fact live in? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why is there such difficulty in this world? And in this world, how does this sin of mankind affect our justice system? 
our justice system of right and wrong. And ultimately, if we spend so much time on this subject, does it lack compassion? How, in fact, does this impact, this view, impact our evangelism and sharing the gospel and our mission to love God, to love people, and to make disciples? Turn with me, if you would, to Romans 5, verses 12 through 21. Paul says here, he says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law, uh, the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one, one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, and so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Our Father and our God, Lord, we come to you as your humble servants. We come and we ask as sinners, Lord, would you put in our hearts the presence of your spirit? Would you help us truly to understand what you are communicating here through your word? And help us to see the full beauty of Christ in the contrast to the wickedness of humanity. Help us, Lord, to grow in your grace and a greater, greater understanding of your son. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Point one, point one is this our positive relationship to Christ. I'm gonna spend probably 87% of my time here today talking about the negatives, so don't miss the positive here. The positives of this passage is in fact the main point. The negative effects of Adam's sin are here mainly to help us understand the positive effects of Christ's righteousness. John Wesley, of course, was the one who said, what use would we have for the stars if the sun were to shine all day? We wouldn't understand the contrast. We can go outside, right? It's a beautiful day. And we can stare up at the sky. There are as many stars out in, in the sky today as there were at midnight last night. But we can't see them. We need the contrast. We need the darkness, the backdrop, in fact, to see the beauty of God's creation, the beauty of God's stars. And like in all things, we need contrast. Where there's high, there's low. We need to understand what God is getting across to us. I've put together for this sermon a glossary of terms 
mainly because I think that the, the key doctrinal or theological words are critical. But for many of us, we don't use these words in our everyday language. So righteousness, when I talk about righteousness, I'm not talking about a really, really good person. I'm talking about a perfect person. Righteous, that they're holy. Justification, uh, this is just a fancy way of saying how God saved you. He justified you. He declared you not guilty and saved you because of his gavel, not because of you. He justified you. We're gonna use the word here in our doctrinal understanding of imputation. Imputation is uh, an immediate realization. It can be both positive and negative. You have the imputations of sinfulness as well as the imputations of righteousness. Something that was given to you, but was given to you instantly. Not something you work your way into. Impartation is a doctrinal term to give uh, a gift continually. The Holy Spirit indwells you and is imparting wisdom to you, is imparting to you the truth of God's word. Whereas justification was imputed to you and in fact was instantaneously upon God's saving work in you. We're also gonna use the term typology. He refers to a type of that which is to come. This typology is just the same as the one that was before. We're going to talk today about the first Adam, but understanding that it's the second Adam that is the one who we worship. But we have to understand the contrast to that, to that Adam so that we can understand the beauty and the loveliness of Christ and what he's done, for he is a typology. Oftentimes, this is referred to as a protos, right? This means that it is likened to, but is antithetical. So likened to in that it's the same, but different. Adam was a man created by God and was, in fact, a sinner. Jesus came as the God-man and lived a perfect life. He was likened to Adam, but he was radically different in that he was antithetical. Different, but the same typology. Sinner versus perfect. But they both had this position of federal head. And federal head, this term, is just referring to that one, both of them have kingdom authority. And that kingdom authority in Adam was that he named everything, the plants, the, the animals, the everything. And he was the one who was in charge. And there was a promise that was made to him. And then Adam failed in that covenant relationship with God. But I want you to remember Paul's overall context of contrast. In Romans 1, he said to us in 16 and 18, he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written. Love that phrase there. It's the righteousness of God from faith for faith because the righteous shall live by faith. Look at the contrast here. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, or of Adam, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We don't think of Jesus as a man of faith, but we should. Jesus was one who followed in perfect obedience. But what Paul is doing here in our context today is he's eliminating a false belief system. He's eliminating the possibility that you could say that your good will ultimately outweigh your bad. And he's taking that out from underneath you. 
For those in my family who I know will probably end up watching this, I'm talking to you. Your good will never outweigh your bad. And we're going to see it in God's word here today in our need for Christ. Paul told us in Titus 3, 5, he says he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. We are not saved by works done by us in righteousness. Therefore, our original condemnation, the wages of sin is death, is not based on your individual sin. But your original condemnation is based on the sinful work of Adam. Each and every one of us here today is judged a sinner. Each and every one of us here today is condemned by a holy God. And we are done so because of one man and the sin that was done. And that should bring most of us to this place of how is that possibly fair? Most of the time, it's because we don't realize that we are, in fact, Cousin Vern. That we are an embarrassment. But that's pointing to our individual sin. Paul's not pointing to your individual sin. This is the point. The point is that since condemnation came to us through Adam's sin, justification, therefore salvation, comes to us through Christ's righteousness. We are condemned because of Adam and we are saved because of Christ. This is what Paul is getting across as his main point. Our second point, our negative relationship to Adam. Right? This contrast to Jesus. Adam is a contrast to Jesus. We start to ponder our negative relationship with Adam and the effect that it has had on us and in fact on the entire world. This particular doctrine establishes a major biblical worldview. For those of you who are already labeling me a Calvinist, remove that thought and understand that this has nothing to do with the five points of Calvinism and has everything to do with the biblical understanding of this worldview that we are all sinners in desperate need of a savior. Look at the positives and the negatives. When we look at Romans 5, verse 12, right? He says in the negative, he says, therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. Now look at the positive on the other side. Much more have the grace of God and the free gift by grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. You see the negative and the positive. Through one man, Adam, we get this. Through one man, Jesus Christ, we get this. Look at Romans 5, 14. He says, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. This is that term protos, right? This is what he's showing here. He's showing a contrast of one who is likened to it and one who is to come that is like the Adam and that he's the federal head, but he is antithetical that he is different than him. The difference being that Adam failed and Jesus succeeded in his faithfulness. 
But look at it in, in the positive. It says, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Do you realize that between Adam and Moses, there was no law? But yet people died. They couldn't return to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because everyone had been kicked out of the garden. The only law that they had was not to eat of this tree or they'll surely die. But yet they were removed from the garden and yet people continued to die. Why? It's important for us to understand that in the beginning, God entered into a covenant relationship with, with Adam. And in his promise to Adam, in his contract with Adam for eternal life, on the condition of perfect obedience, righteousness. Adam is therefore best understood as a covenant head, a federal head, a leader, a dominion authority, right? And his effect had an effect on all those who are of him. Everyone in this room is of Adam. And therefore, the effect when Adam sinned, you and I sinned. Paul is saying that the consequence of Adam's sin, which is death, was experienced by those who had not done what Adam did. In other words, this is an imputation of Adam's unrighteousness. Somehow there's this union between Adam and the rest of humanity that is passed down from generation to generation that as Adam sinned, you and I are sinners as well. We receive the full weight of his unrighteousness. In fact, the Bible tells us that you were conceived in sin. I have children, I have grandchildren, and I'm gonna tell you, no one had to teach them how to sin. I'm sure I did a great job of it, but no one had to teach them. Sin comes natural. In other words, Paul's stressing here that it's not our own individual sin that brings first condemnation to us. It's Adam's sin. People die who had not sinned in the likeness of Adam. That's the point. Adam's sin is the most fundamental problem. Not our specific sins, but his sin. This is why our good can't outweigh our bad. Because I can't make amends for Adam. And because he sinned, I sinned. And Jesus Christ's righteousness is the fundamental solution, not our righteousness. Right? Our good will not ever outweigh our bad. As we look at continuing at the negatives in verse 15, it says, for if many died through one man, which is Adam's trespass, look at the positive on the other side. Much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Look at the negative in verse 16. It says, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But in 16b, it says, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification, it brought salvation. Or in 17, it says, for if because of one man, Adam, trespass, his sin, basically, death reigned through that one man. Look at it in the contrast. In the positive, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Or in 18, he says, therefore as one trespass, this of Adam, this one trespass of Adam led to condemnation for all humanity without exclusion. 
or 18b, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. This creates two fundamental problems for us. One is the power of sin enters into human existence and it corrupts or it depraves our human nature. Remember in Romans 1 when we looked at the progression of sin that God handed us over, God handed us over, God handed us over. And we see that progression of debauchery. We see that progression of sinfulness. That sin is in fact corrupting us. And we certainly can't forget in Romans 3 when he tells us that no one is righteous, no one seeks God, and no one does good, no, not one. In fact, this power of sin that enters into human existence is likened to if I took a drop of crazy poison that would drop me dead in an instant, I put in just one drop of it in the water. How many of you would be willing to come and take a sip of the water? I'm going to because I'm thirsty. But. We start to realize, right, that, that this poison, this sin poison, has transferred to all humanity without exclusion because, in fact, all die. One out of every one dies. The second problem is this. Our condemnation is owing first to Adam, to his sin, not to our specific sin. And again, I'm not saying that none of us are sinners. I'm saying we're all sinners. But the one sin that you can't overcome is Adam's sin. So here's the first problem. Two things about our condition, our nature that is inherited from Adam. First problem, we sin in Adam's sin. That is what Romans 5.12 is saying, he says, for all sinned, all humanity without exclusion, all sinned because Adam sinned. So how do we explain this? God ordains, of course, that there is some sort of union, some kind of union that makes Adam's sin to be our sin so that our condemnation is justified, that we are, in fact, all labeled sinners. Verse 16 is what talks about this basis of our condemnation. And when he says, for the judgment following one trespass, one trespass, one sin brought condemnation. Condemnation is just the wages of sin is death. They were told when they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that if you eat of this tree, you will surely die. And we have. We died spiritually. And then we ultimately die physically. Once. But notice the three steps in this process, right? One transgression equals a, con a consequent judgment. It's a label. If I called you stupid or if I called you something, I'm labeling you. Most people would sit there and be offended if I called them stupid. I'd be offended if someone called me stupid. But if someone looked at me and says, you're just a sinner, oh, that's accurate. It's my label. It's my judgment. And that judgment results in condemnation, in death. The judgment itself that death resulted from, Paul wants to stress it was Adam's act. 
He's stressing that it's not our independent act, but it's Adam's independent act that brought this condemnation, right? He says in verse 18, therefore as one trespass, which is of Adam, led to condemnation for all men. So what's this judgment in verse 16? It's the results that results in condemnation. We simply just call it original sin, the first sin. This sin is the sin that we're looking at here. And it's on the basis of our union that God has established between us and Adam. Original sin could be defined this way. The moral corruption we possess as a consequence of Adam's sin, resulting in sinful disposition or a sinful attitude, manifesting itself in habitually sinful nature. That's us. An attitude of sin, a disposition of sin, a sinful behavior. The doctrine of original sin focuses particularly on its effect to our internal uh, nature and our standing before God. It is our label, we are sinners. The judgment that Paul says resulted in condemnation is this. It's not our individual sin, but the imputation of Adam's is ours. When he sinned, we sinned. Do you ever think, right, in the Revolutionary War, there was a, there was a, a, a battle cry. And this battle cry was over the entire intent of the war, of the Revolutionary War. And that battle cry was simple. No king but King Jesus. We don't want a king. We don't want someone who is in charge of us. We want to recognize that all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God and that there is not one person who is better or worse than the person on their left or their right. Our comparison is totally inadequate because we're comparing to the wrong thing. I can tell you that my three-year-old grandson is a sinner. I didn't have to teach him that. His mother didn't have to teach him that. Although his grandfather and his mother are in fact sinners. But if I compare him to every other kid, he's just a regular three-year-old. If I compare him to the holiness of God, he is wicked to the core. We start to realize that it's not our individual sin, it's this imputation of Adam's that is ours, and it is through one transgression, verse 18, Adam's transgression, that condemnation resulted for all. Even John 3, 18 tells us, right, that if we don't believe, we've been condemned already because condemnation has already existed, right? So the first thing that the passage teaches about our relationship to Adam is there is a second problem. The other thing that we see in the passage is that through Adam's sin, all humanity really does become corrupt in the heart and sinful in our behavior, right? This is not the main point of Romans 5. In fact, it seems to me that Paul is trying explicitly to keep this from being the main point. And the reason why he doesn't want it to be the main point is because we don't want to base our condemnation first on our individual sins, and then base our justification, our salvation, on our individual righteousness. Your good cannot possibly outweigh your bad. That is the condition of all humanity without exclusion. 
all are bad. All human beings since Adam have sinned. And so this leads us to this place of kind of like, Jeff, where is my hope? Where am I going to possibly find my hope? If there's nothing I can do about it, if I can't work my way into the kingdom, if I can't be saved by me, how am I possibly going to have salvation? How can I possibly do that? Well, point three, our remedy in Christ alone. The remedy is in Christ alone, right? Problem one is our sinful nature that enslaves us to sin, and the other is our original guilt and condemnation that is rooted first and not in our individual sinning, but in our connection to Adam and his sin. In fact, the entire letter to Rome is all about the remedy. The problem of our condemnation in Adam, which God remedies through justification, through Christ, through faith alone. And the problem of our individual corruption, our individual sinning and depravity, he remedies through sanctification through the Holy Spirit. Jesus said to us, no, I have to go so the helper can come. You were saved once and for all because you were imputed the righteousness of Christ and you are sustained by the power of the Holy Spirit that is imparting to you wisdom for you to grow. But Nonetheless, your sanctification as a Christian, I always like to talk people out. If you're thinking about following Christ, let me give you an example of what it's going to be like. He's going to pull you through a keyhole by your feet. He's going to strip you of everything because it's nothing about you. It is all about him and it is to his glory and his glory alone. There is no injustice with God because he has already remedied the problem created by Adam. That is the power of God. Look at it this way. The problem of our legal guilt and sentence of condemnation that is due to Adam is solved by his reckoning to us the righteousness of Christ and the problem of our sinful actions and our habitual sinning, right? Our sin is solved by the purifying work of the Holy Spirit. The first remedy, justification, salvation, it comes by an imputed righteousness. God, who knew no sin, became sin. He took that sin upon himself. He took the imputations of your unrighteousness upon himself, and then he gave you in return his righteousness, his perfection. So that when you sit here today, you stand before a holy God in the throne, in the kingdom of God, praying to him, and he sees you as holy and blameless. He not only loves you, he likes you. He sees you as perfect because of his son, not you. Paul wants us to see this contrast the sanctification that is imparted to us, right? Imputed means the, to instantly credit to one's account, right? Imparted means to give daily for one's abundance, from one's abundance to another. Imputed takes place instantly. Imparted takes place continually over a lifetime. In fact, Romans 3 through 5 has been all about justification. And Romans 6 through 8 is gonna be all about sanctification, that leaves us with just a lot of information, a lot of difficulty. As I invite the worship team and the prayer team back up, what does it benefit us to think about our depravity, to think about our sinfulness? 
Let me try and close by pointing out those six practical questions that I had. What are the six practical benefits from come from pondering the condition of humanity? The depraved nature and the legally condemned that are of Adam. Question one was, why is the fallen nature of mankind even matter? Can we just talk about love? Can we just talk about Jesus? The first point of what this, what this word does is it humbles us morally and intellectually. Morally, because I must admit, I, I not only do bad things, but I am darkened to my very core. I not only need natural training, I need supernatural rebirth. Unless one is born again, he cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And I have no more responsibility of my second birth than I did of my first. God's divine act, taking a sinner condemned and saving his soul, it humbles me. Question two, how does this focus of sin be realized as a positive? Well, you see, it deepens our gratitude for salvation. The more we know about our fallen condition, the more grateful we should feel that we are in fact saved at all. How does this view explain the world we live in? This is the biblical worldview. It helps us explain the world that we live in because the ironic thing about the doctrine of original sin is that while being one of the hardest doctrines for us to accept, it helps us explain most of what we see in the world namely the universality of evil. How does this affect our justice system of right and wrong? It gives us insight into how governments should be established. G.K. Chesterton and C.S. Lewis said that the doctrine of original sin is the basis of a democratic formed government. The argument of democracy is not that men are good enough to govern themselves, but that men are so bad, so evil, none can be trusted with absolute power. Brothers and sisters, I know we live in this world where we're constantly influenced by television and media and social media and politicians and all the different things. Jesus Christ is coming back in the clouds, but he is not coming on Air Force One. Stop looking to your government to be your hope. It is the hope of Jesus Christ and Christ alone. It leads us to this question of does this view, does this view of the depravity of man, does it lack compassion? No, it should produce compassion. Jonathan Edwards said it this way, this doctrine teaches us to think no worse of others than of ourselves. It teaches us that we are all, as we are by nature, companions in a miserable, helpless condition, which under a revelation of divine mercy tends to promote mutual compassion. Nothing has a greater tendency to promote those amiable dispositions, those amiable attitudes of mercy, forbearance, long-suffering, gentleness, and forgiveness than the sense of our own extreme unworthiness and our misery and the infinite need that we have of the divine pity, forbearance, forgiveness, and together with each other, 
the hope of obtaining mercy from him. It's hard for us to treat other sinners with hostility and lovelessness when we have a deep grasp of our own fallen condition. When you see that person pushing a shopping cart, say those words to yourself, there but by the grace of God goes I. If it weren't for God's grace, you'd be pushing that same shopping cart. There is no value to look at someone as less than you, but to see everyone as created in the image of God and to bring the truth and the hope of the gospel to every person you encounter. <coughs> this doctrine, how does it impact evangelism? How does it impact missions? It helps motivate us in evangelism and world missions. It teaches us that there are no exceptions to human sinfulness. And so every person you encounter needs the gospel. All who come are of Adam and are in need of a second Adam. There's only one Jesus Christ. For those of you who think that your good will outweigh your bad, hear me clearly. There is only one Jesus Christ. And he is your only hope. We have to get it right. This is God's one remedy, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the power of the Spirit through faith. No other religion teaches this remedy besides biblical Christianity, that you are lost and he has found you. God has revealed to us the diagnosis. God has revealed to us the remedy. He has shown it to us. He has made, it, made us love it. He's made us rejoice. As Bob said earlier, rejoice is to worship it. 1 Corinthians 15 says this. It says, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. We ran out of that grave. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Your question to walk away here today for your small groups this week is, are you, am I of Adam or am I of Christ? It's plain what we should do with this message. We need to tell this good news to the world and delight in the spreading of Christ-exalting joy through one man, the righteousness of God to all that believe in him. That's incredible. But don't miss this. Don't miss just the beauty of the contrast between Adam and Christ. Don't miss the beauty of who Jesus is. And certainly don't miss his righteousness, the perfection of God, the holiness of God that he revealed to us from heaven, the unrighteousness of us and the beauty of his gospel. Amen? Our Father and our God, Lord, we come to you and we humbly submit ourselves to you. We ask, Lord, that you would lead us and direct us, that you would help us to grow in your grace and your mercy, that you, Lord, would find it in your heart to take us another day and let us be your feet, your hands, as we deliver the good news of the gospel to all that we encounter. Amen. Man, I hope that that leaves you encouraged. I hope that it leaves you walking away from here saying, thank you, Lord, for saving me, a sinner. Now use me mightily for your kingdom, to grow your kingdom, to advance your kingdom. During the middle of the 
between the first and second service, we had those baptisms. I want to let you know we have baptisms coming again in March. Reach out to us. Obey this God who set his affection upon you, who cast his kindness upon you, who expects nothing from you but to worship him as holy. May we as a community grow in this grace. May we grow in a greater understanding of his son and may we take his word and exalt him highly, high, high, high. For he is worthy of all praise. Amen. I love you guys. We will see you all next week.